friend. Welcome to the Clyde podcast. I'm Willow Weston, the founder and director of Clyde. And if you have never been on this podcast before, I'm so glad you hopped on. Today, I got to interview Nicole Burdick. She's a financial advisor and finances are about my least favorite thing to talk about, but I had so much fun in this conversation. This is a woman who's been nominated for an won several awards, including the Chamber's Top 7 Under 40, Woman of the Year in her city in 2019, and Top Financial Advisor in the Best of the Northwest multiple years in a row. She has so much to say about finances, but I wasn't bored for even half a second. She brought up things and deep dove into things like the psychology of money. I asked her about the theology of money. She really, what I especially enjoyed is that she talked about how we all have money stories. We have these voices and these experiences from our past that sort of uh, guide how we now see money, feel about money. And she talks a lot about shame and mental blocks and the emotions tied with money. I think that this conversation will bless you in some way and impact you in some way. And I hope you enjoy it. I know that I certainly did. Check it out. Nicole Burdick, I'm so glad that I get to hang out with you today. I haven't seen you in person in so long, and it's exciting to hear what God is up to in your life. And so we're going to sit here and talk about finances a lot today, which isn't my favorite topic, by the way. So you can totally school me and, and this will be good. But you've sort of become a guru, if you will, when it comes to helping women with their finances. Why is this a passion of yours? Um, I feel like I could come up with a lot of really long answered versions of this, but I feel like my dad summed it up really well when he one day looked at me and just said, you must really love your job. It's just a lot of people and numbers. And I thought of how many like a zillion of words I would normally use to answer the question, why do you love your job? I'm like, no, it's just loving on people through numbers. <laughs> That's basically it. So Loving <laughs> on people through numbers. That's awesome. So you come alongside people and you're advising them and their finances. When you do, how are you seeing it impact their professional and personal lives? Yeah, you know, I think that one of the challenges is that money, I mean, money really is amoral. There's no morals to it. It's not good or bad. But a lot of people come with so much baggage around it. And whether it's their personal finance or their career path or whatever. Um, there's just a lot of, I won't say just women, but like people in general that are really frustrated that they can't make progress when they learn something. And there's just these blocks that they don't understand because for some reason we think that money should be just numbers. And it's actually really, really very emotional. Mm. Um, and so that's a common struggle that I see. And, um, you know, the financial industry doesn't really talk about those things as much. You know, we talk about financial literacy. We talk about, you know, what is the difference between a Roth and a traditional IRA? What should you be investing in? And there's really a lot more personal stuff that I think is at the core of, of our, our money struggles. Invite us into that a little bit. When you talk about there's these blocks, can you give us some examples of what some blocks are? And when you say numbers are tied with emotions, maybe some examples of what some of those emotions yeah. are? Yeah. So there's a term that we use called money stories. And I think that 
that's what a lot of it centers around. So a money story is basically a story that you create in your head. Usually it starts as a child and it's just based on your experience seeing adults interact with money. Um, Could be your parents, could be your teachers. And you form these beliefs about money that are buried in your subconscious. And as an adult, if you were to face those same facts and see those same things, have those same experiences, you would interpret them differently. But most of us don't even know that they're there. So we never go back to reevaluate them. So one example, um, in the book that I'm writing right now, I talk about someone named Jen. And Jen is a grown up is she just gets so frustrated because she as soon as money gets into her bank account, she just spends it. She's like, I'm not stupid. I am very responsible in other areas of my life, but I cannot figure out why I keep doing this. And turns out her money story came from her time as a child where she worked many, many weekends to save up for an iPod and would hand her mom her allowance, her her babysitting money, her whatever uh, the money that she had. And when it came time to buy her iPod, her mom had spent it. Oh, wow. All this money. She had saved like $300 as a child and her mom had spent it. She'd intended to pay it back, but she never did. And when she thought about that memory, all of a sudden I was like, oh, like it feels like the safest thing that I can do with my money is to spend it as quickly as I can get it. Mm-hmm. And there's this light bulb moment where you realize that because it, from the outside, it just looks like she's irresponsible. And if you're just looking at your behavior as irresponsible, there's not really a lot of compassion, whether it's from other people or from yourself. And so I think that everybody has these money stories. I have some of my own. And if you don't actually kind of take that deep dive into like thinking back, like what is your first memory of money? Where did it come from? How did you see people around you handle money? Were there any traumatic events? You know, did someone die? Was there a job loss? Did you have to move? Um, And when we take the time to go into those money stories, there's just a lot of truth that's uncovered. And I think a lot of that, oh, (laughs) I get it now Mm -hmm. moments. You almost sound like you're a financial advisor and a counselor. (laughs) Yes, there is a designation for that that I would love to get someday. Um, But it's interesting. And I think it's a challenge in my industry because I think all of us would say, yes, money's emotional. But the training we get, there's like nothing around how to help people through their emotions. The training is what products do you sell? How do you invest your clients? How do you provide great service? How do you make sure their investments get reviewed? How much life insurance do they have? Like all these technical questions, mm-hmm. um, you know, but even with the, um, the certified financial professional designation, it's like the highest level designation for a lot of us. They just added behavioral finance within the last two years, which is basically the psychology of money, mm-hmm. which is just mind blowing, but it's definitely... I would say particularly with couples, um, it's an area where there's just a lot of learning on the fly of how to handle conversations that really go a lot deeper than the numbers. Mm -hmm. The psychology of money, are there some kind of key questions that you pull out of your pocket when you're meeting with people to kind of get into their psyche around finances? Yeah, I still like to streamline that into a clearer process. I follow every single time. But one of the most common ones is just what's important about money to you? And what does that look like to you? A lot of people will say freedom, but that means like a gazillion different things. And so just asking that question of like, what does that look like for you? And then, okay, so, you know, maybe, maybe Willow says, I would just love the freedom to feel like anytime I want to trade my friend for coffee, I can go to whichever coffee shop I want and I can afford a drink for myself and for my friend. And I don't have to ask permission. And I want to know that that's okay. Mm-hmm. Say, okay. So, well, let's imagine you're at a place where you, you know, that you have enough money that anytime you want, you could take yourself and a friend out for coffee and not worry about money. 
is there anything else that's important to money about money to you after that? And then you basically just keep going. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the answers that come off first are pretty practical. But then the more you ask that question, you might get to something that's more of like, you know, I just really wish that I could spend time with my family and not feel like I have to use every spare moment to grow my practice because it's all for them. But because I'm working so hard at it, I never have time with them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so asking that question over and over again, until you get to the highest level, you know, heart's desire, um, I think is, it's one question, but I think it's pretty powerful. one. Mm, the highest level of the heart's desire. I have so many questions I want to ask you. I'm trying to think what direction I want to ask you first, before I ask you my long list of questions. You talked about the psychology of money. What's your own personal theology of money? Mm. That's an interesting one that I'm still wrestling through. I feel like a lot of my current life happens at these intersects of different areas of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's definitely an interesting one because I grew up not having a lot. And just what I witnessed, I don't think anyone explicitly said, Nicole, you are a much better Christian if you make do with not a lot of money. But that's what I internalized. And so it's, um, and I have a money story in my book that I'm writing with someone with a similar story. Um, You know, grew up as a missionary, saw her parents in the ministry doing things because it was important and it was God's work and they were passionate about it. And then now, you know, this gal goes into the real world on her own and just really wrestling with her career track and just, again, can't figure out why she can't just make a decision and pick one. And then eventually she realizes like she's looking at career tracks that could make her decent money, if not a lot of money. And deep down inside of her somewhere, and I relate to this story quite a lot, there's this sense of like, if a good Christian makes do on not a lot of money and or, you know, maybe you earn more money, but you give most of it away. If that's what a good Christian is, then if I pursue this career track, I basically have to choose between a good career and being a good Christian, which is not true. Uh (laughs) But that's, you know, it's one of those stories that gets buried pretty deep. But I look at money is basically a tool to live out your values. And if you are serving God and loving others, it's just a tool to do that more. Uh Um, But yeah, that's just theologically, it's interesting just balancing out generosity with, um, you know, we, we live in an individualistic society and the responsibility for a lot of our personal stuff falls on us. And um, just juggling those things, you know, how do we share with others while taking care of ourselves? We're not a burden on others later. And um, also, how do how do we find that balance between being good stewards of what we've been given while also trusting God to provide? Mm-hmm. Sometimes those two can seem in tension with each other. Mm-hmm. So many good things to think about. I'm 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 thinking about it for myself right now as you're talking. <laughs> so here you are, and God has called you to this important work and you're helping sort of organize people's lives. When did you first realize you could help other people organize their life? Well, I used to run an organizing business. I initially thought I was making up the idea of having an organizing business and quickly learned that there were professionals doing it already, which is (laughs) quite disappointing to feel like I wasn't the first one to it. But um, when I moved to the town that I live in now in Bellingham, I met a friend named Julie Clark who ran an organizing business. And I basically said, I literally want to be you when I grow up. Can we become best friends? 
And she's like, well, let's start with coffee. Um, so we started with coffee and then we proceeded over the years to become best friends. Um, but yeah, I, I learned a lot from her about how to organize, but also I think there's really a lot of carryover between home organizing and financial planning in that it's a medium to get to the heart. When you look at a hoarder's house or just a house that's a complete disaster, Mm-hmm. it's usually someone, there's either one of two things going on. One is like situational, something crazy came up, it was out of their control and it's just crisis mode. Um, or it's like something that's going on internally and you can't deal with this stuff without dealing with, with what's going on internally. And that also makes it a really fulfilling way to minister to people because you're able to minister to their heart, but also feel that satisfaction of having a a change made that's visible and tangible. Um, I think there's a lot of the work that we do that we know are making a difference, but it's not incredibly tangible. You know, if you have a counseling session, you don't really look different afterwards. It takes a while for the, Mm -hmm. those, those outcomes to really manifest themselves. But man, when you're organizing a space, you come in and it's a disaster and you leave and there's just this mental burden that like they do look different. The person looks different. And also the space is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, absolutely. I can tell this is a passion of yours, but also it's clearly an ability of yours. And I read an article about how you realized that this was an ability that you intrinsically had in you Mm -hmm. when you were little playing hide and seek. Can you tell us that story? Um, Yes. I think I must have been 10 years old. And it's funny, there's actually this has happened multiple times, but the one I remember most clearly was we're playing hide and seek in a friend's house. And I somehow using my limited gymnastics abilities climbed to this top shelf of a closet. I, I feel like it's pretty high. I don't know how I got up there, but I get up there and there's just this pile. I, I think she just like threw her sweatshirts on top, like not folded, just all willy nilly. And I was like, this cannot do. And so I basically just stayed in there hiding and like refolded every single sweatshirt and stacked them up all nice and neatly. And I was like, please don't let them find me before I finish. <laughs> oh my gosh. I need you to come hang out in my closets, lady. I know. I know. I've, I've had friends, moms invite me over to quote unquote, hang out with their daughters. And I'm like, oh my gosh, your room's a disaster. We cannot play until we get this taken care of. And yeah, I'm pretty sure now as an adult, I know why the moms were the ones inviting me over <laughs> for those <laughs> sessions. That's amazing. That's so funny. Whether the dream is to build stronger community, write a book, start a nonprofit, tell your story, adopt a child, or take a step toward healing past wounds, Collide's newest Bible study, Go Ahead, will encourage you not to let risk aversion or fear get in the way of an invitation from God. What does an extraordinary life look like for you? What if your biggest dreams can come true? This book is a beautifully designed, colorful 10-part book that centers around Matthew 14, 22 through 36, where Jesus miraculously walked on water toward his disciples in a boat. The events and conversation that follow will challenge and inspire you. So dive in now to be encouraged to say yes to the invitation that awaits. Go Ahead is available now on our website at wecollide.net. You talk a lot about how you love helping change people and give change people's perspective. Just give them like this slight new way of seeing 
things differently. Sometimes I think with finances, people get so overwhelmed and it feels like there's so much that needs to happen. Why do you think just slight new ways of seeing things can bring such transformation in our lives when it comes to finance? Mm. Well, honestly, I feel like there is a lot of just unnecessary shame and maybe even condescension in a lot of sources of money. Um, There's a lot of, you know, you would have to be stupid to do X, Y, Z. You know, it would be foolish to do this, this or the other thing. Like anyone who knows anything about money should have these things taken care of. And whether that's maybe you ended up with more student loans than you would like to have had, or maybe you took out a car loan and some family member said it was a bad idea, all of these things. And I feel like There are choices that we make that we don't have all the information we need to make an informed decision. Mm -hmm. And there are choices that we make based on values that are different than someone else's that actually are right for us that we could get shamed for. And it's very challenging to navigate which, you know, which thing that is. And if it's a decision that we made that turns out wasn't the best once we learn more, it doesn't help to have shame and condescension around that. And it's almost like... um, And I do feel like this is where some of that theology kind of comes into play. If you live outside a world where there is such a thing as sin, there's not such a thing as like really forgiveness, like repentance and forgiveness. And not that like making bad financial choices is a sin, but I do feel like there's some choices we make that we regret. And there's a lot of the positive thinking, which is how do you skip it? Instead of taking a moment to be like, you know, that time that I charged that really expensive thing to my credit card. And I kind of knew better and did it anyways. I really wish I hadn't done that. It's almost like you just have to do this apology to yourself, mm-hmm. but then you can kind of move on from it and you can, you know, extend yourself forgiveness mm-hmm. or however you want to view it. But I think just giving your, giving yourself grace. And I think if you skip the past, the fact that maybe you did make some mistakes here and there, it's kind of, hard. you can't really extend grace. So there's nothing to extend grace to. Mm-hmm. And then on the value side, I think that it's hard to find um, a source of people t- teaching you about money that's not based on what's important to them and what the way they think the world should be. And if you've never found someone whose values around money matches yours, you're just going to feel like you're doing it wrong. Hmm. And yeah. so you either learn to follow what everybody else says and live basically someone else's life or make choices that are right for you and just feel like you're doing something wrong even though you're not. And I have examples. I refer to people that teach about money that don't hold licenses as money celebrities. And they become famous around a certain ideology around money. And there's one in particular who teaches a lot about getting out of debt. And that's like their main thing. And everything revolves around staying out of debt. And um, I grew up on that. I used to teach that. And for me, it was a huge shift to make the decision to do three things. One was take on student loans. It felt so icky to me to take on student loans, even though I knew that I valued my education. I knew I had done everything I could to avoid debt up until that point. And I knew I needed to finish my degree to get the type of job that I wanted. And yet that sense of, you know, if you can't afford school without student loans and you can't afford to go and just take it at at a pace you can handle. And, you know, I'd already been spending years to get a few classes done. And so I made the decision that was right for me, but it's just a bummer that it came with all this emotional baggage. Mm-hmm. And same thing with my current car. I had, you know, paid cash for a thousand dollar car. And I was, you know, I felt like that was the right thing to do to avoid a car loan. Well, after like a month or two of driving it with my, you know, toddler daughter, and I was like, this just does not feel safe to me. 
and I need to take out a car loan. And in my head, I hear this, you know, only stupid people would ever pay interest on a depreciating asset. (laughs) It's like, shut up voices in my head. Like I need a safe vehicle to transfer my daughter. And I bought a car with a car loan. And then 10 days later, we were in a car accident. And I was like, I'm so grateful that I made that decision Mm -hmm. and buying our first house. I had been taught, you know, you have to have 20% down. And I had to move past that voice of like, it's not irresponsible. Maybe for some people, that's right. But for me, I talked with my lender, I talked with my realtor, and I made a different decision for what was right for me. Mm-hmm. How do you filter out? Because that's what I was thinking when you're talking is that there's all these voices. Every mm-hmm. time you give an example, it's almost like someone else's voice is in our heads telling us what we should do. And I love that you're sort of challenging us. Well, then you're living someone else's life and you have to do what you think you need to do that aligns with your values. And I like that so much, but how do you filter out sort of like these voices that are infiltrating your mind and guiding your finances that don't align with your values, but not also listen to uh, an unwise voice that might be coming from yourself telling you to do things that also might not be a good idea. How do you filter out, uh, you know, both of those? Cause I think a lot of times we can think, I mean, heck rewind back to me in college and it's like, Oh, I remember my freshman year move into the dorms, you know, and all of us students were walking up to the cafeteria for the first time. And there's, you know, row after row of, these tables of people suckering you into applying for your first credit card. And I applied for like Mm -hmm. three, got them. I was like, sweet. I can, at the time it was like, I wore dresses with Doc Martin, Doc Martens and Dooney and Burke purses, which if you can even imagine those two together, it's so hilarious. But look (laughs) at my credit card slips of like going up to Canada and partying and buying all these Doc Martens and purses and crazy stuff. And I didn't have money to pay it off. And I think in my own mind, it was like, oh, this is fun and it'll work out and all those things. So how do you filter out your own unwise voice with also the judgment and shame and opinions of other Mm -hmm. people? I think that having a few, kind of like you'd mentioned earlier, a few pocket questions, um, if you will. And some of the ones that I use are, the first one is, what value does this decision represent? So, you know, maybe that's, I want to go to Canada with my friends. Okay, so that's the spending decision to spend however much going up to Canada. That represents to me community, maybe. Um, and then the second question is, um, do I understand the short-term and long-term implications of this. So, okay, so short-term, I'm going to put my money on this credit card and I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Long-term, you know, do you, do you understand that? Or do you need a little bit more research long-term? Like, and you might've been like, I, I have no idea how I'm going to do that. Okay, well, let's just sit down and, I mean, maybe take uh, sit down with a friend who enjoys numbers, but like, let's scratch out this trip that you're taking, how long it'll take you to pay off. And mm-hmm. if that seems like a good idea to you. And then the other question is, is this, and I think that this is the most important one that does kind of cut through what you're talking about, the difference between making decisions that's right for you and not for someone else um, versus maybe one that's just not a good decision. And um, that, that is, is this decision the best way to reflect this value? So I think that one example for a lot of people is like family time or time with friends and you know, that can look like so many different things that could look like taking a trip to Thailand together and getting away from everything and spending like quality time together. It could also look like, um, like for my family, we bought a 
pop-up camper trailer thing. And for us, that, you know, is basically the equivalent of someone else's one or two vacations that we can use over and over again. And so for my family, what value is it? It's time in nature, time together as family, time away from work. It's hard to carve that out while you're at home. And so that was the value. It was like togetherness and family time. We understood the short term and the long term, right? It for the short term we could afford it, and the long term it wasn't going to compromise other goals for us. And then, was this the best use of our funds and the best way to live at that value for us? The answer was yes to that. Um, so that's just kind of one example. But I think that running through that list for everyone, um, I wrote, an, I was contributed to an article recently that was written towards single women that are trying to evaluate between helping their kids with college and saving for their own retirement. And they kind of brought it back to those same questions: What value does this represent? Okay, education is important to you. All right, do you understand the short-term implication? You're signing for a loan. The long-term implication, maybe you understand that helping your child with college is going to make it so that you have to work another five years. And maybe that's important enough for you to do that. But if you don't ask that, especially the long-term one, if you don't ask yourself that question, it's just well-intentioned, uninformed decision-making. And I think that's the part where we could practice better stewardship to do a little bit of research more like, what does this mean for my long-term? And sometimes there's still going to be opportunities where we feel like God's calling us or, you know, where it's, it, we may feel like we're making a decision that doesn't line up with everyone else's view of how our long-term should look like. And that's fine. But I think that if we skip thinking about how it'll f- affect us long-term, it can really stunt our long-term impact. Mm-hmm. I love that question. Is this the best decision to reflect that value? And then also the challenge you're giving us to think long-term. When it comes to women specifically in finances, I'm kind of curious if there are some really challenging or devastating circumstances that you often see as commonplace that women specifically experience when it comes to their finances. Yeah, there's two that come to mind specifically. Um, one, I have a pretty good number of women who are um, the more mature generations. And generationally, is a lot more common for men to handle the money for them. And so that can be pretty scary and overwhelming and just stressful if they either go through a divorce or if their um, spouse passes away. And so that's one that's pretty hard. They're um, they're just not included in the money decision making, and and they didn't. You know, we learn a lot from how our family handles money. So even once you get to the point where your generation, it's normalized for women to d- interact with money. If it wasn't normalized for your mom's generation and for your grandma's generation, or your aunts or whatever other female you know matriarchs you have in your family, there's that sense of like seeing it and understanding it, and. And holding that like internally as something that is part of what you're allowed to do, part of what's important for you to be a part of. Um, And then the other one that I've seen for a lot of, so a lot of the women that come to me are women in transition and that could be death. Like I mentioned, and it's also divorce. And I find that women are more likely to walk away and just leave a lot on the table because they're emotionally done. And that has left a lot of people that I work with in a really tough spot. I've Mm -hmm. met with one person who had walked away from three marriages and each one, she just left him with the house. And she said, he'll pay the mortgage. I don't have to have the debt payments and that's good enough for me. And um, it's just devastating because I'm like, you could have had some financial stability in your golden years and you have nothing because they're... And I think that for a lot of them, we... I think that women are more likely to need emotional support through that. And so you need someone saying, hey, hang in there. You know, we got to make sure that we take care of you and your ability to care for your family. 
Um, and again, going to that long-term outcome. And sometimes women walk away with not a lot and that is the right choice for them because of custody issues or, you know, other factors. And so it does vary for everyone, but I just, I feel like I come across a lot of women that are in a tough spot because they walked away with nothing. Mm-hmm. How much does shame play a part in this where it's, they feel ashamed about where they're at or, you know, you describe you know, some of the older generation, but I even think, I, I mean, even myself, I, I don't pay the bills. My husband does all of that. And I've often thought like, well, if, if something happens to him, I'm in trouble, you know? And I mm-hmm. think I could see where you could get in a situation where it's very well-meaning and yet you feel really ashamed. Like, how did I get here? I feel clueless. I, I didn't know we were in this situation. I didn't know we owed these taxes, all of those things. Mm -hmm. Like, do you experience a lot of shame and how do you invite people out of that place where shame just sort of keeps you stuck? It doesn't invite you into freedom. So how do you meet people in that? Well, I think it ends up being a self-perpetuating cycle because when I feel ashamed of something, I avoid it. And a lot of women come to me pretty far along in life and they're like, I really should be further along. And there's so many different reasons that they could be in that position. It could be that they were taught poorly. It could be that they've left a toxic relationship. It could be that they were just busy. It could be that they didn't have a lot. It could be that they were in survival mode. There's so many different reasons. But for um, a lot of them, it really just comes down to like, let's start today. You know, best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Second best time is today. And just leaning into that. And I think that, you know, industry-wise, as far as like my line of work, it's not necessarily common to find someone that's really compassionate in meeting you where you're at. Um, You know, we are taught basically to look at retirement and are you saving enough to have a fully funded retirement? And if not, that's the number one focus. Um, But sometimes our job has to be basically moving the needle in a positive direction. (laughs) And um, yeah, and I, I do think that, there are some circumstances where if we are in a relationship, our partner is the one handling the money and we are nervous about the idea of engaging with our money because of some of those shame, icky feelings. Like it's interesting. There's, there can be shame around not having a lot of money or having a lot of debt. There's also can be like shame around having a lot. Like you feel like you're a greedy person or like, you know, if your friends knew how much you had or that you'd received an inheritance that they just wouldn't relate to you anymore. And so I I think that those are some of the other reasons that we end up avoiding it. And I, I don't know. I do think that if we just leaned into it, there are a lot of women who from the outside look like they do have it all together and probably think everybody else has it all together, but a lot of us really don't. You know, I have a close connection who is one of the most feminist type feminists that I know. And she still had had, had not started saving for her own retirement at the time of divorce. Hadn't looked into any of that. Had left it up to her husband. And I know that there's some theological implications of gender roles and everybody has different views on that. But I do think that there's ways that we can move into being more supportive partners by being more informed and aware so that our partners aren't carrying that whole burden of all of the money knowing for the household. Nicole, you have so much fantastic advice for someone like me who doesn't love talking about finances. I feel like I could keep talking to you all day. I am curious though, how do you find Jesus stepping into and caring about our finances? I think Jesus cares about our hearts. (laughs) 
I think he cares about our purpose and our impact. And, you know, I think that culturally there's a lot of baggage we have around money, but it really is a tool that I believe can be used to fulfill our calling in life, can be part of our calling in life. And, you know, as far as all the baggage that we have around it, I feel like he cares about working through our baggage with us. I, I, he, he cares about our feelings. He cares about our souls. He cares about um, our, our minds and how we see the world. And a lot of us have a major disconnect with money and it doesn't feel like a spiritual thing, but it really, it's just a medium for curing things out. And if it's, it's an extension of yourself, it's an extension of your beliefs, it's an extension of your values. And I think that if we can, instead of avoiding it, because it feels weird and icky and materialistic, I think that if we can learn to engage in it and make peace with our past with it, Mm -hmm. I just think that there is so much power there and potential for us to just have significantly more impact with our whole selves and our whole lives and not just what feels spiritual to us. Mm -hmm. I'm curious when you think about women listening who want to experience freedom in their financial life, but they're feeling discouraged today, what's your best advice for them? I mean, I feel like starting off by bringing it to Jesus in prayer is a great start and just ask him to help you process some of those feelings, whether that's shame or fear or embarrassment or hurt or grief, whatever it is. And, you know, pray for healing and pray for comfort and pray for wisdom. Um, And I think the next step would be to connect with someone who enjoys the numbers, enjoys um, finances. I'm a little bit partial towards working with financial advisors because that's what I do. But I think that finding someone who is experienced in that area, that is also really a safe place emotionally to bring your whole self to and just saying, hey, here's this pickle that I'm in. I don't really know what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have any recommendations for me? Hmm. I appreciate you and all you've taught us today, Nicole, all you're doing in the world. I'm so glad that you've moved out of the hide and seek closet of organizing your friend's clothes <laughs> and you've jumped into organizing uh, our financial lives. And I appreciate the deeper perspective you've given us today. I'm wondering if you can share how people can connect with what you do if they're interested. Yeah, I should be pretty easily Googleable. Um, the best social media to find me on would be Instagram. And my, um, my Insta is the underscore money underscore Maven underscore. I, yep. I'm, I'm on the internet. Awesome. See you there. I love it. <laughs> Thank you for hanging out, Nicole. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me, Willow. It's been a blast. Yes, it has. Man, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know I took a lot of notes and I'm thinking a lot about my own money stories and experiences and how they're impacting my financial life today. I hope you're asking yourself some good questions as well. Today, when I met with Nicole and had this interview, it just blows my mind every time I sit down with someone that I interview, when I see how throughout a person's life. It's almost like God has his hand on us when we don't even know. 
that story where she's playing hide and seek in a closet and all the kids, that's probably all they were thinking about is finding each other in this, in this fun game. And she's in a closet and she's organizing someone's clothes. And I think it's so fascinating how God's already setting someone up for their calling, for their passion. He's already gifted them with ability. And I think the same is true for us. I think that all along God has had his hand on you and he's had his hand on me and he's shaped us with stories and experiences and given us giftings and wants to use us in the world. And look at how he's using Nicole in the world. He's taking this thing that's been intrinsically in her for so very long. And he's using it to impact lives. And I love that he can do that with you and I. If you need encouragement in your finances today, I truly hope that you will check her out and follow what she's doing. I also hope that if you're feeling stuck or you need some mentoring, there's a few resources that I think about. One is our Women of Impact course, our online course. It has 55 different women who work in all different sectors, whether it's business, whether it's ministry or the nonprofit world or education or the healthcare industry. And they speak into our lives on how we can be used to impact the world and make a difference. So check that out. We also have on our Let's Collide page on our website at wecollide.net, we have a Getting Unstuck resource. If you're just feeling plain stuck and you want to figure out why there's a free resource on there for you. All I know, friend, is that Jesus wants to meet you wherever you're at right now and call you in to your best life. He wants to give you freedom. He wants to take away that shame and he wants to use you to do amazing things in this world. So be blessed. Keep colliding. We'll catch you next week.